So, guys, sorry, but bear with me. I've got a couple more announcements for you. And the first is this. Uh, it's a picture of international students. We have a great opportunity in Topeka because of Washburn University to basically welcome folks from all over the world into our homes. And there's a number of families in this church that have done so already and continue to. There's an opportunity coming up the weekend of March 4th and 5th in which there are some short-term students here. Some of them are only two weeks, some are three weeks. And they're on Washburn campus for most of that duration. But over that weekend, um, Washburn University and Topeka Friendship Network, a group of Christians from churches around Topeka, are hoping that a number of folks just like us would be willing to pick one of those students up on a Friday afternoon evening, take them home with us through the weekend, return them back to the school on Sunday, <clears throat> and basically just hang out with them, take them with us whatever, wherever we're doing, wherever we're going. Uh, it's easy to do if you've got a spare room and they can hang out there. It's a great opportunity. You guys will be blessed if you can have conversations with somebody from another part of the world as we have. We're sharing the love of Christ. You don't have to travel to another world to be a missionary or have gospel-centered conversations, oftentimes with folks who've never heard the gospel or heard it clearly. So that's March 4th and 5th. The bulletin has a contact uh, for the head at Washburn University over international students. I think it's Wendy. But her name and number's in there. The other announcement, yeah, you got to pull this out, right? So, yeah, that's the latest helping grandchild. That's Stevie Grace Golden, born to Steve and Bethany Wednesday night, the 15th. And Bethany and Stevie are doing well. Genevieve's figuring things out. And <laughs> Bethany's not getting much sleep yet. So, with that, thanks. Okay, on to the message. Help me out. Um, pride has been called the sin that informs every other sin. You know, I'll bet if I had an hour or two, we could do that with each other, right? How conceited are you? I would love that picture. Pride's been called the sin that informs every other sin. Webster's Dictionary, the old one, says, uh, Pride is an over-high opinion of oneself. It's an exaggerated self-esteem or conceit. If we flesh that out a little bit, we could add things like this. Pride is evaluating ourselves or elevating ourselves at the expense of others. Raise ourselves up, put others down. Pride is a failure to take our rightful place before God. I know this isn't true of anyone here, but I'm describing others. Pride is making ourselves the center of all things. In pride, I tend to minimize my own sin and culpability. I tend to maximize the sin or culpability of others. Romans 12.3 warns us, it says, uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think soberly to have a right appraisal of yourself. But frankly, it's a command that few of us ever get right. It's interesting, too. Have you ever talked to someone and they say, uh, I struggle with self-esteem? That's a popular thing to say, but it's absolutely unbiblical, isn't it? Nobody struggles with self-esteem. So, so the person who berates themselves, right, they say, oh, I'm humble, I struggle with self-esteem. It's like, okay, well, tell me what that looks like. Well, you know, I'm talking myself down. I'm berating myself. I'm reciting my faults. And you say, okay, well, how does that pan out? What does that look like? Well, effectively, it means I'm always thinking about myself. And so that means I'm the center of my universe. I'm the most important person around. We call that pride. By, 
by belittling myself all the time, I'm actually elevating myself because I'm the center and the sum of all things. I love this. Golda Meir, you remember quite a gal, born in the U.S., I think in Milwaukee, but was the prime minister of Israel. She is reputed to have said this to someone who was groveling in what she considered false humility. She said, quit trying to be so humble, you're not that great. You don't have to work at humility. You're not great anyway. Just get over yourself. I, I bring all this up, uh, pride, because my hope for this morning is that we get a realistic view, God's realistic view, of what He said was true of us past tense and might be true of us to some degree now or might be true of some of us altogether now, depending on what our status is in a relationship, in or out of a relationship with Christ. If you've been here or haven't, uh, chapter 1 in Ephesians is where we're going. Excuse me, chapter 2. In chapter 1, we've already talked about God's plan for the ages. And we said God's made it very plain that He says the end to which everything is going, the sum of all things, is finally going to be that Christ will be Lord over all things. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading. Christ over all. And then also we saw in chapter 1 a great model for prayer. Paul, Paul articulated the way he thought of and prayed for the Ephesian believers. What we get in chapter 2 is the beginning of seeing how is it that God is going to submit all things under Christ. And so in chapter 2 you start with God reconciling to Himself people like you and I, individuals. And then later on, not this morning, we won't get to this, but later on in chapter 2, you also see how God's reconciling the church to Himself, this new covenant people to Himself as well. So my goal for this morning, guys, is simply to steep ourselves initially. And this is the big message this morning. It's what I would call the bad news. If it still remains true of us, it's really depressing, but could be motivating. If it's not true of us right now in the present tense, then it's really informative because it, the effect of this should be that our pride kind of does what the empty balloon does, you know, as it, it just goes right on down. Because once you gain God's perspective of who and what we were before salvation, pride should not have anything left to do with us. So we're in Ephesians 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And we will... Guys, I'm on, but I am not getting this thing. Thanks. Uh, 1 through 10. Yeah, I'm reading from the ESV. And if you use a pew Bible, it's page 976. So picking up where we left off, Ephesians 2, Paul says now he's looking past tense. Remember, he's speaking to believers here. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived in trespass and sin. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Nobody's exempt here. But God, that's an important phrase, by the way, we'll get to later. But God, that's the turning point in this passage. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you've been saved. God raised us up with Him. God seated us with Him, Christ, in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, how about if I just nod my head, because this is not doing anything for me. Yeah. So look, at, we're going to look. This is where we're spending the lion's share of our time is in verses 1 through 3. So what's true of us before salvation? Before conversion, what is true of us? Who were we and what were we like? Verses 2 and 3 sort of encapsulate, and they do it one phrase and word after another. Verse 2 says that we were dead in trespass and sin. Those could be your feet or those could be my feet spiritually. God starts by telling us you were dead in trespass and sin. And that doesn't mean that you were a little alive or a little dead. That doesn't mean you were mostly dead. That means you were really dead. Yes, thank you. Somebody got that. Thank you. Not mostly dead, really dead, really really did and this condition paul makes clear throughout right it's everybody there's no exception here everybody was really really dead remember again he's speaking to believers harold honer says this about dead in trespasses and sin that phrase he says these denote trespass and sin a conscious and deliberate false step a conscious, willful action against God's holiness and righteousness and thus a failure to live as one should. You know, sometimes when we sin, we say, I made a mistake. God's like, there are no mistakes. In fact, you know, one of the things we do when we meet with couples for counseling, we say, now let's just set, this is our foundation. There's no mistakes, there's just sin, okay? So if there's an issue, we call it sin. Because if it's sin, we've got a solution because God, God takes care of sin. But if you just make mistakes, we have nothing to talk about. So let's call it sin or let's just keep on going, okay? So God says sin. And this whole thing, you know, zombie movies are on the return, aren't they? Shows and I've seen them. They're, they're out, right? So we're the real zombies, right? Because we're physically walking the earth. But God says that's our spiritual condition. We are dead, spiritually dead to God. There's no thought that we have any power, any vitality, any ability on our end to interact with God. We are a corpse spiritually as far as God's concerned before our conversion. Guys, I had an occasion when I was a teenager... And I made very little money and I'm scraping all the money together for the desires of my heart. And one of my key desires was I was going to buy a new receiver and a pair of speakers. And I'd investigated because I love studying up, right? And I've got my Kenwood receiver and I've got my CZX speakers. 
and I've bought them at the store, I've taken them home, I've unboxed them, I've plugged everything in and together. This is like Christmas, birthday, 4th of July for me. This is all of them wrapped into one. I can't tell you my level of excitement. So I, I, then I plug in the power cord and I turn the switch on. And, you know, this is pre-digital. So the needle bops, the light comes on, I get a gentle hum from the speakers, and then all of a sudden there's this poof sound and the light's out. And I'm like, what could I possibly have done wrong? So I check the things again. I plug it in. I re- reconnect, you know, everything. Guys, I can't tell you how frantic I was. I'm like, what could I possibly have done? And once I can't get it back on, I'm thinking, I killed it. What did I do? I, I have to have done something. It's brand new. It's out of the box. But I'm a new Christian, so I knew what to do. So I laid my hands on that receiver. And in the name of Jesus, I asked God to heal that receiver. And bring it back to life. I'm serious. It's pathetic, I know. But that is what I did. And uh, it did not come back to life. So eventually I'm like, okay, I take it, put it in the box, take it back to the store. They check it out. They said, your receiver has a dead short. The fuse is blown. There's nothing you can do for this thing. It's dead. Now, unless you can get somebody else who can come in and find the dead short and fix the dead short and replace the fuse, this thing is dead and there's no hope of resurrection. You and I are like that receiver. We cannot fix ourselves. We have a dead short. There is nothing we can do for ourselves. We are a corpse in a morgue, spiritually before God. There's no thought we're doing anything to get out of that situation. If somebody doesn't intervene for us, that corpse stays dead. My receiver stays dead. Now, we're piling on this morning because God does, okay? So this is where I hope we know. This is us before conversion. So he also says there in verse 2, God says through Paul, you were not only dead spiritually to God, a corpse, you were also following the course of this world. You, Paul says to believers, you were following the course of of this world. Now the world of course is not what we put our hands on here, is it? It's the moral, it's the ethical, it's the spiritual human and spiritual world head up, headed up by Satan, we'll get to in just a minute, that's opposed in all that it is and does against God. So God says here through Paul, it's not just that you were dead to me, he says, but you were actually following that's your will. You were following the, the sinful, rebellious course of this world. You weren't looking for God. You were following the course of this world. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, the world system there is called the domain of darkness. And remember, it's a sister epistle, so there's a lot of similar language. But here it's you're following the world that's in rebellion against God. In Paul's language in Colossians, You're a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, willingly. You know, many of us would say something like this. um, I'm not a follower, I'm a leader. I take the road less traveled. And it's like, what does that look like? Well, I I buck the system. I, I march to my own drum. I do my own thing. And you say, well, actually you don't. There's just variations on the theme. So if you're a rebel, your form of rebellion may look different than my form of rebellion, but it's all rebellion. 
There is nobody who bucks the system. There is nobody, Paul says, who's not following this sinful, rebellious world. That's you. That's me. That's all of us before Christ. Like lemmings, we're running over a cliff together and all of us are doing it together. None of us are exempt. Lemmings over the cliff. He keeps going in verse 2. By the end of this, we should have no pride left, right? No boasting, no bragging rights left. He continues at verse 2 and says, You were also following the prince of the power of the air. Now, Paul makes sure that we know later in this epistle, that's Satan, that's the devil, that's the accuser of the brethren, that's the first sinner, if you will. Satan's the power that informs all that's going on in this world system that's opposed to God. Now, if you tell somebody on the street today, you're following Satan, what would most people say? No way. That's not me. I'm a good person. I live a good life. So there, there would be extremes on this, right? What this looks like for any given individual. So on one extreme, you've got people that say, no, I do follow Satan. Eyes wide open volitionally. I revel in wickedness. I revel in being the rebel against God and following the God of this world. I'm all in. That's one end of the spectrum. But what's the other end of the spectrum? I would say this. The other end of the spectrum is people who are simply religious. They go to church. They go to synagogue, temples, and shrines. And they do so in rebellion against God. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm religious. You know, I'm appealing to the better angels of my nature. I'm trying to make a difference in this planet. How could I be a rebel when I'm going to church and trying to live a good life and be a good person? You know, it's good to remind ourselves Satan is at home in churches, many churches at least, as he is at a bordello, right? Or a drug house. Does he care what form rebellion takes? No. Whatever works. Whatever works for that person or that group, he's comfortable in. Remember that it was religious people with Gentiles who crucified the Lord of glory, right? God's covenant-loving people, religious, crucified the Lord of glory. So if we're merely religious, and that's religious, remember there's a difference between relationship and religion. Religion is man's attempt to get right with God. That's not what we're talking about with spiritual life. We're talking about a relationship. So you can be a religious person and you're still in rebellion against God. It's life on your terms, your way. Think of this. If you buried a priest in the robes of his office because he died, physically he died, and you buried a pagan in his suit, they're both physically equally dead. Their bodies, they're dead. It doesn't matter how they live, what they were. Their bodies are dead. A religious person without Christ is as dead to God as a non-religious person without Christ. Religion is not what God's talking of. Remember, idolatry is religion, right? And everyone's an idolater. Scripture lays that label on all of us multiple times. So religion isn't at ease. If we say, I'm not going along with the crowd in the world, God says, no, you are. And you're following the prince of this dark kingdom and this dark world. You are. You were. Again, before conversion. He continues. Verse 2, You were sons of disobedience like the rest of mankind. You were sons of disobedience like everybody else. You weren't an obedient, faithful child. The the term here has the thought of a grown-up child. A son or a daughter who's grown up. Not a little child. A grown-up. 
And the thought here is this person is disobedient by, by volition, by will, by decision, by practice. Sons of disobedience because you want to disobey God. That's the thought here. At verse 3, he continues that thought when he says, We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And again, remember, we all once lived this way. Passions of the flesh, desires of the body, and the mind. Chuck Swindoll, in his commentary, describes these this way. He says, We lived in the lusts of our flesh. That's emotional depravity. We indulged the desires of our flesh. That's physical depravity. And we indulged the desires of the mind. That's rational or mental depravity. And then in verse 3, this is the last one. He says, You're children of wrath. So you're sons of disobedience. That is, you're grown-up children volitionally choosing to be in rebellion. But here he says, You're children of wrath and that's the greek word for little children and the thought here is in fact harold honer says it this way to be a son of disobedience is one who by his own choice disobeyed god but to be a child of wrath is one who by his relationship to his parent or ancestor comes under god's wrath remember we talked about judgment last summer because adam and eve sinned and because in this world we reproduce what we are. Those things that are reproduce after their kind. The only thing we can reproduce physically is sinners, right? We need a spiritual rebirth. We're zombies. We're alive physically, not spiritually. When sinners, saints who are saved physically have physical children, they're reproducing sinners, not saints. That requires a new birth. That's true of all of us. We're not blaming our parents for our condition. But the thought here is you sin in rebellion by choice, but you're also born in rebellion. You didn't even work at that. It's because of our sinful condition all the way back to Adam and Eve. So on the front end here, when Paul's describing who it was that God chose to set his love on, it wasn't nice people who needed a little help. It wasn't that we made a mistake here or there. It wasn't that we had a little life and we just needed a little more help. Not at all. And that's where most of us tend to make the mistake on this. God says we were dead to Him spiritually, no hope, no life. With everyone else, we were following the way of the world as citizens of the kingdom of darkness. We were sons and daughters following the father of disobedience, Satan himself, and we were under God's wrath from birth on. You see that same thing in John 3. Verse 12, we're not getting into this morning, but it sums up that whole thought this way. We were without hope because we were without God. So guys, this is, this is the stew God has us uh, stew in to get some sense of who and what He saved. If we don't start here, we don't understand what God was up to. If we minimize the degree of our fallenness, depravity, rebellion transgressions we're we're failing to see how bad we were and how good god was so he wants us to take the blinders off and say this is who and what you were now at verse four everything changes and it starts with this two-word phrase but god and now everything changes so we're going along and he's saying you 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 this was you but now he says now god comes in 
but God. And it's almost like in those verses 2 and 3, it's the, it's the night of the soul, right? It's the soul's night. It's darkness all around. It's sin. It's depressing. It's hopeless. But you get to verse 4. Now God inserts Himself and it's like the sun rising. And now all of a sudden you see this is what God was up to and this is what God did in your salvation and mine. Remember Lazarus at work? Thanks. In John 11, you've got a, a friend of Jesus who died four days prior. And his corpse is deteriorating in that tomb. Now, he's as dead as he can be. He has no will. He has no thought. The, the soul, the spirit has left the body. That body is dead. Now, unless something else comes in with power to bring Lazarus to life, he's not going to get life. He's going to stay dead. You've got to have some power. You've got to have power for the dead to come to life. And that's what God starts talking about here. Now, in Lazarus' case, it was the power of Jesus' Word, Lazarus come forth, that spoke life back into that corpse. And God says we need power to enliven dead folks just like us. He starts off at verse 4. He says, But God, because of His mercy and His great love, and we'll look at those later, this is what He did. Verse 5, God made us alive with Christ. That's power. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ to heaven. And verse 6 again, God seated us with Christ in the courts of heaven. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, it was talking about the power that was at work in Christ is at work in us now. And it described that was resurrection power. It was the greatest power in heaven or earth overcoming the power of death. And so now Paul's picking that theme up again and he's saying it was God's power that brought life to a corpse, to spiritually dead people like you and me. It was God's power that was at work. The strength of God's power that raised Jesus raised us. The power of God moved us from the kingdom of darkness to become residents of heaven. And it was by God's power that those who were weak are now exalted above all other powers in heaven or earth. Do you remember Mary Shelley's best-known work, Frankenstein? Remember sort of the general theme is Dr. Frankenstein cobbles together a body from different parts of different corpses. But he's got a problem, doesn't he? Because he's got a body but no life. And in that story, Frankenstein harnesses the power of God via the lightning in heaven to come down and empower that dead corpse and it comes to life, right? We needed a power that we didn't have. The body, the corpse has no power. We need an outside power that would come in and give us life. And that's what God says He was up to in Christ. God was empowering a dead corpse to come back to life. This is really helpful for me too. We talked about this on another earlier Sunday. Think of it this way. Many of us struggle with our own sinfulness in a way that says something like this, I'm still bad, I can't get over my sin, I wonder if I'm saved. Now, I'm all for getting before God humbly and saying, Lord, where am I at with you? What do I need to do? I'm good with that. But many of us are afraid, having come to faith in Christ and salvation, that we're somehow going to lose it. But think of it this way. If the power above every other power has saved you, has enlivened you, the power above every other power, then what 
possible power is left that could take you out of that position of life. If the power above all other powers is what has saved you and given you life, what power in heaven or earth can take that life from you? There is no power, right? Power above all powers. It's illogical. It's an impossibility. That's essentially what Paul says in Romans 8, too, when that chapter winds down. This is a thought that really should give believers a profound sense of security. I didn't save myself. God did. The power above all powers in God gave me, a spiritually dead person, life. No power in heaven or on earth can remove that life from me. That's helpful. That's encouraging. Now, that's why verse 9-2 says, again, to the image of pride, uh, how much boasting do you or I have in our salvation? How many, how many bragging rights do you or I have because we're Christians? You have zero. The language here is you were dead, God made you alive. Salvation is a gift. You didn't work for it. In fact, God, he, he credits himself as the, as the potter, if you will, the workman who remade you. You got nothing to, to brag about. God's power at works to bring a corpse back to life. We're alive in Christ by God's power. This is a good time to say this too. If you don't know, if you weren't 100% sure that if you died today you're going to heaven, you, you can know today, right? You can pass from death to life. You can pass from judgment to justification, to stand holy before God. And we do that in the language of Ephesians too. We do that by faith, by accepting or by trusting what God has done for us in Christ. We don't work. We don't get holy. We don't get religious. We don't go to church as a way to get saved. We simply accept the free gift of eternal life God offers us in Christ. You can do that today if you haven't. So, we've got power at work. That's a good thing. I'm always behind. That was my last one. Yes. Um, and you've got God's grace at work. This passage has this tandem. God's power is at work because God's grace is at work. So if you look, this epistle 12 times uses that phrase grace in the Greek charis. 12 times. Three times in this passage alone. Charis, God's grace. Grace is God choosing to set His favor and love on us as a decision of His will. It's not based on any merit of ours. You know, you tell people, God can't love you more and He won't love you less. He has chosen, when you were at your very worst, God who knows all things, chose to give you His grace, His unmerited favor, and also chose to set His agape love on you, a kind of love that, again, God's love on us is not dependent on how we respond. It's absolutely from His will. He chooses to bless us no matter how we respond. With His goodness and His kindness and His mercy, God's love and grace are at work in us, and that's why His power was at work in us. But follow this down through verses 4 from 4 on, we're told that God's rich mercy was at work in our salvation. This term mercy, this is what somebody who has suffered the way you suffer wants to do for you to alleviate your suffering. This is an informed uh, coming alongside to help someone. When Jesus took on our humanity and then He became tempted in all the similar forms that we are, and then He became sin for us on the cross, when God shows us mercy in Christ, Christ knows what this feels like, what life 
on this earth feels like to us, what it feels like to be tempted, what sin looks like, what its penalty feels like. Jesus knows that. So when God pours out His mercy through Christ, it's the thought of, I've been there. I know what that feels like. I know what that looks like. I have compassion for you, and so I give you my mercy because I know what that feels like. He says also at verse 4, God's great love, you don't do anything to earn God's love. He chooses to set His love on you. Verse 5, by God's grace we've been saved. Verse 8, by grace we've been saved. Verse 8, our salvation is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't work it out. It's freely given. And at verse 10, we're the fruit of God's work and power. How many here have Ephesians 2, 8, 9 as a memory verse already? Yeah, if you don't, I would strongly encourage you to make this one of your memory verses, this short passage, because it's profound. It's the very basis of the gospel. It's not what we did. It's what God did for us. It's not religion. It's relationship. It's God's power, not our power. We accept a free gift. Not what we did. It's what he did. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This church's statement of belief says that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It's not about us. It's about Him. So you say, so God's very careful, right, in this whole thing. He says, uh, this is what you were like. This is what you were like. This is all predicated, by the way, on Jesus coming in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the cross. We're not getting into the theology behind this. Rising from the dead. This is all predicated on Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for us. But then, these dead people, God says, I made you alive. It's my grace, my mercy, my love that's at work here. And so I hope you guys would have the same question that I have, which is, why bother? If that's the status of all of humanity, when God looks down on us, why does He do this? Why does He do this? Because He doesn't have to. If, if God condemned all of us, he would, he would exercise full justice and righteousness. He doesn't have to save anyone. He'd be fully just and fully right. So why does he do this? Now you can go to other passages, and this passage highlights God's love, doesn't it? His power's at work because of his grace, his mercy, and his love. But actually that's not the reason God primarily gives here for why he goes to these extraordinary lengths to save people like you and me, as described in those first couple of verses. So why does God do this? What's, what's at work with this? Now, I hope this humbles you too. It does me. Look at verse 7. So that, this is the reason God has done all this. Loved corpses, loved rebels, saved rebels and corpses and people like you and me. This is why God did that so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do this? He intends to show, to demonstrate, the immeasurable riches of His grace to us in Christ. There's a very significant level at which God is saying, I saved you to demonstrate My own perfections through My Son. This... This is a humbling thing. We're trophies to God's grace. Have you ever gone to an outdoorsman's home, fisherman or hunter? I'm thinking of the largemouth bass on the wall. That mouth is wide open. And maybe it's mounted on a little piece of log. You know, the body's twisted. And you walk in and, and wow, that's a nice fish. Yeah. Now, you know, that was a nice fish in the lake or the stream, wasn't it? 
the, the glory of the fish was there apart from your wall, wasn't it? It was there. God made it. Wow, that's a great fish. Why is it on your wall? Because it's demonstrating your ability as a fisherman. I caught that fish. I did that. Or, you know, the big antlers on the bull elk or the, the deer or whatever. The trophies on the wall, not for the trophy. It's there for the hunter or the fisherman. And guys, at a very basic level, you and I, we're trophies. And God has mounted us on His trophy wall in heaven. And He says, this is what I did. I caught this one. I saved that one. I breathe my life into these. And this is what they used to look like and this is what they look like now. We are trophies to the grace of God in Christ. That's the reason in this passage, God tells us He went about saving us. We're trophies to His grace and love in Christ. Now that's humbling. Guys, that's not about us. That's about God. And God's unapologetic about this. Are we okay with that? Have you ever had conversations like this with other people? They say, uh, man, he must be a very insecure God if he's got to do things for his own glory. He, what a small-minded, like he's a child. He's not okay with himself, and so he's, he's got to do these things so that he's glorified and he's all that. Have you ever heard this? So is that really what this is about? And we say, well, no, that's not quite it. So if, if God is perfect, and he is, and if God chooses to display the perfections of His glories in grace and love and kindness through Christ, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. For God to display gloriously the perfections of His grace and glory is a good thing. And that's what God's doing in the salvation of people like us. And we get the benefit of it. But God makes no apologies here. He's God. We're corpses. Or we're the fish. Or we're the deer. And he says, I brought this one home. Not about us. About him. This should be, I hope, very, very humbling. Now, last thing, and we really don't have time uh, in this whole series. There's, there's too much to cover, and so we're just hitting some high points. I do want to mention a couple quick points before we close on that last verse, verse 10. It's more the language of God's sovereignty when he says there, we're his workmanship. God's the worker, we're the clay. He made us, he refashioned us. And he created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace to do works of grace. Saved by grace to do works of grace. And guys, you don't have to get creative about this. God has so fashioned you He's put you together. He's gifted you. He's enabled you in all kinds of ways that you don't have to worry that you won't be able to do the good works God calls you to. You'll be perfectly ready to do the good works God's called you to. You just have to have our, your eyes open. We just have to be aware God wants us to be active in what He's doing. You remember we call the first temple, uh, archaeologists call it the first temple period, but what do we call the first temple? Solomon's temple. Why do we call it Solomon's temple? Because he built it, right? Who gave him the blueprints? David. Who had set aside almost all the gold, the silver, the bronze, the wealth, much of the lumber and some of the stones? The piles were there. The site was picked. The st Who did that? Was that Solomon? It wasn't Solomon. 
That was King David. Daddy gets everything ready and Junior comes along and takes all the glory. Solomon, if you will, walked in the good works God had ordained or laid out for him. He didn't have to work that up. It's like, here it is, son. This is what you're going to do. And that's what God does for us. But our eyes have to be open. We've had one of the things uh, Mark and Larry and I do when we meet for accountability is just say, are we looking for opportunities to share the gospel? And, you know, we could go weeks and just say, we haven't. We're looking. But, man, Kathy and I have had, uh, I can't tell you how many opportunities in the last few weeks just because we're trying to be sensitive. And you like, here's a conversation. There's a conversation. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. And it's just like, Lord, what do you, we're just looking. And guess what? There's no work to it. We said hi to a guy in the elevator in the hospital the other day. Just asked him, why are you here? It's the ER area, critical care. Uh, my father-in-law It's like, well, I hope he gets better. He gets off the elevator. On he goes. When we come back down, he's sitting in the lobby. And I just thought God's like, go say hi to him. You already said hi to him. So we go and say hi to him. You know, oh, I've, I've, we're looking for opportunities for the gospel, right? He's got a relative that's dying. Well, it turns out they're Christians. And her dad just received Christ days before. He's on his deathbed. They're getting ready to pull him off the ventilator. I kid you not. So we go to share the gospel and we walk away blessed and encouraged because in this conversation, we're ready to share the gospel. God encourages us and encourages them just because you're trying to be open. And this is the thing for us. We've got good works. All, All God says is open your eyes. I've equipped you. I've called you and I'll show you. And so we want to make sure that we who are saved by God's grace are just having our eyes open to the works of grace God calls us to. Well, let me wind down. Uh, You remember the joke about God and the evolutionist? The evolutionist comes to God and says, God, I challenge you to a duel, a duel of creation and life. He says, we'll both start with a pile of dust and we'll see who can create life. And God says, fine, I'll take that challenge and we both start by making our own dust. You make your dust, I'll make mine. Well, the duel's over, isn't it? Because you can't, the evolutionist can't make dust, can he? That's us. It's an impossibility, right? If God doesn't breathe life into dust, dust doesn't come to life. And this whole thing is about God making sure that you and I know something. He saved us. He didn't save nice people. He saved wretches. He saved sinners. He saved people that were happy to go on in their life following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Wicked, evil, sinful rebels. So when we're thinking about ourselves, we want to make sure that we have God's appraisal of ourselves. Because then it's all about Him and we are freed from pride until the next time we're tempted with it. But the concept is there, isn't it? God liberates us from our pride by showing us what we were. Then our hearts are drawn out to Him because we get it. God, You're the God of all grace. You're the God of all comfort, mercy, love. It's all about You. And guys, when we get our eyes on God, we are liberated from living lives, deficient lives, lives, failures, you know, in our areas of temptation. When when we get our sights on God, everything's different. When we elevate our own goodness, we diminish God's grace. When we think more highly of ourselves than we should, we think too lightly of God's mercy in Christ. And when we make much of ourselves, we lose sight of the greatness of God's glory, which He put on display in Jesus' work for our reclamation. 
Guys, if God would save you or me, he would save anyone, right? Because we were all doing the same thing, living the same way, headed to the same destination. So that's hopeful, right? God saves dead people like us. Father, thanks that salvation was all you're doing, that you chose to set your love, grace, mercy on us in Christ with eyes wide open, knowing fully and totally who and what we were. Thanks for that. Lord, eternity won't be long enough to declare your praises or to grasp, Lord, the greatness of your grace and your glory. And would you help us revel today in being trophies on your wall, trophies to your grace? And Lord, would you help us overflow in a humble kind of praise and readiness to share with others the hope we have because of what you've done for all of us in Christ? Amen.